Uh, take your Bible, go to 1 Samuel chapter 30. 1 Samuel chapter 30. I want to share with you a message that I believe God has placed upon my heart. Full recovery. How many believe that this is the season to make a full recovery? To recover all. It doesn't matter if the enemy stole it from you. It doesn't matter if you left the front door open and just said, come on in. God wants to restore to you what the enemy has taken. It's his will that you experience a full recovery. I want you just to stand with me for Samuel 30. I'll be reading just a few verses, starting at verse 1. Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag, attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire, and had taken captive the women and those who were there. From small to great, they did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. So David and his men came to the city, and there was, burned with fire, and their wives, their sons, and their daughters had been taken captive. David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. David's two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite, had been taken captive. Now David was greatly distressed. For the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, and every man for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, Please bring the ephod here to me. And Abathar brought the ephod to David. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And the Lord answered him and said, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. Drop down, please, to verse number 17. Then David attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all, to say recover all, that the Amalekites had carried away. And David rescued his two wives. Look at this. And nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great. Sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from them, David recovered all. David took all the flocks and herds they had driven before those other livestock and said, This is David's spoil. Thank you, Father, for your word. We receive it and we receive your ministry by the Holy Spirit today. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> Recovering all, I believe, is a very prophetic word right now because of the season in which we're living in and David we know of course was a man who had a great destiny when he was just a youth the great prophet Samuel had anointed him and informed him that in due season he would become the king of Israel now we know that David was not immediately launched into his divine destiny there was a period of some time in fact probably about 12 years that passed before David was promoted from the pasture to the palace. Now David, during this time, in this interim period, lived in caves in the wilderness as that madman King Saul was in hot pursuit of him. Of course, we know that the whole purpose of Saul chasing after David was to eradicate him and abort the plan of God from coming to fulfillment. I mean, how foolish is that? That a man can think that he can stop God's plan from coming to pass. But that's the way of sin. That's the way of selfishness. It says in Ecclesiastes that madness is in the hearts of the wicked. 
So here is Saul pursuing David. And for this period, David is, is hiding. David is, is, is remaining by the grace of God uh, in a place of security and safety. But the day finally arrives. The set time comes when God said, no more delay. David, you are about to be promoted and positioned into that divine place that I have established for you. Now, the enemy, I believe, is, is much more aware, even acutely aware, of things that are happening in, in the spirit realm than often we are. And the enemy recognizes that David was about to be moved into his divine destiny, and he makes one final attack. He literally mounts an offensive against David in the hope that he would make a final attack that would demoralize and debilitate David. Now I want you please to notice whom the enemy attacks. He attacks David's family. He attacks David's finances. He attacks his home. And literally David returns to Ziklag with his men. They find the city burned. They find that their, their wives and their children and all of their household possessions have been taken by the enemy. And so David and his men are in a place of great discouragement and debilitation. In fact, I believe that David, even he who had gone so through, gone through so much and had stood firm in, in trials and testing in the wilderness, now is a, it is a low level that he's never been at before. David now literally is left alone. His closest comrades, his mighty men, those who before had risked their lives to even get him a drink of water, now had turned on him and now were speaking of stoning him. No one is there to stand with David. David is alone. The scripture tells us that David had a choice to make. He could resign he could surrender himself to the enemy, or he could fight. David chose to fight. And the Bible says that with tenacious faith, and because of the divine intervention of the Lord, he ended up recovering all that the enemy had stolen from him, and he was promoted into his seat of authority. Now I want to ask you a question this morning. What about you? What is it that the enemy has stolen from you? What is it? Right now, as I, as I think about what's happening in the body of Christ, I personally know several, I mean, in, indisputably godly men and women that are suffering right now in the area of finances, that are suffering right now in, in the area of sickness and disease, I mean, these are people that have been faithfully serving God, and all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, the enemy has come, and the enemy has literally mounted an offensive against them and run roughshod over their lives. I want you to understand that we are living in a time right now where I believe that the enemy recognizes that his hour is short, his time is short. And the Bible says in Revelation that the devil, knowing that his time is short, has come down with great wrath. The enemy has come down with great wrath. Why is that? Because I am telling you, we are literally on the verge. We stand on the threshold of what, just crossing over into the greatest move of the Holy Spirit, the greatest outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and the ensuing result will be the greatest harvest of souls that has ever been experienced in this world's history. 
I am telling you prophetically that we are literally on the verge of seeing a great shaking in the natural. But God is going to use even what the enemy meant for evil for good. And the Bible says that in the last days, they will come trembling to the goodness of God. There is going to be a move of the Spirit that happens concurrently in a time of darkness and shaking and political and economic uncertainty that is going to result in a time of many, many souls coming into the kingdom of heaven. We are living literally what I believe is the great and final harvest before Jesus comes back. Now, I want you to understand that church will never go out in a whimper the true church will never go out defeated we will not leave this earth with our proverbial tail between our legs saying thank you lord that i was able just to hang on (laughs) i read somewhere about a glorious church A church without spot or wrinkle. An overcoming church. A church that does great exploits. A church that conquers even in the midst of gross darkness. Listen, I want you to understand that God does have a plan for you to recover all. A plan for you to recover all. In fact, the first thing I believe we need to understand is this is, you get ready, man. I'm telling you, I'm going to give you some revelation. The first thing that you need to understand is that you cannot recover anything on your own. You know, some of us have said, look it, I've wasted years. I've wasted money. I've wasted my talents and my gifts. You know, I, before I knew the Lord, I, I might have been a musician. In fact, there's somebody here this morning, you were a musician, even in the secular environment, before you became a Christian and you wasted many years. But understand this, that God is saying that he is the one who restores. Joel 2.25 says, God speaking, I will restore to you the years the locust hath eaten. The years. Now, how in the world can God restore to his years? You ever think about that? Oh, come on now. Oh, my Lord. He didn't say, I'm going to restore to you the stuff. That's part of it. But he said, I'm going to restore to you more than the stuff. I'm going to restore to you the years. Now, if we live to be 120 and we wasted 40 years of our life, that's still 40 years. But God says, I will restore to you the years. How does he do that? Leviticus 25, verse 20 and 21 speaks of the fact that when God is saying to them, you know, when the Sabbath comes, I don't, want you to, I don't want you to farm. I don't want you to sow. I don't want you to reap. And they're like, well, God, what are we going to do? I mean, if we, don't, if we don't sow in the seventh year, what are we going to do? And here's what God says. In the sixth year, I am going to bless and increase your seed to the extent that it will sustain you through the seventh and eighth and into the ninth year. Do you understand what what God is saying? He's saying, I am going to do something so supernatural that time and, and and the natural things of this earth cannot contain it. In fact, 
In fact, in John 10, verse 10, Jesus spoke about his job description. The enemy is being to steal, kill, and destroy. He said, but I've come that you have, might have life and life more abundantly. Correct? All right. That word there, more abundantly. Are you ready for this? In Mark chapter 6, verse 51, the same word in the Greek language is translated beyond measure. Beyond measure. Oh! <laughs> I've come to give you life beyond measure. Now, somebody told me once a little bit of, you know, I, I studied a little bit of physics and that kind of stuff, and I found out there's something called Einstein's theory of relativity. Now, Einstein's theory of relativity, very simply stated, is this. Where there is no motion, where there is no matter, there is no such thing as time. God is a spirit. When we are in the spirit, there is no such thing as time. <laughs> you see, it says in Revelation 10, 6, that when, when Jesus comes back, time shall be no more. Time shall be no more. A day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. God is a spirit. He is not constrained by time. From eternity to eternity, you are God. And when we learn to transition out of that place of carnal living, natural living, because we're called not to walk by sight, but to walk by faith, then we move into a dimension, into a realm where nothing on this earth can literally contain or hinder what God wants to do in our lives. He says, I want to bless you beyond measure. I am going to take 120 years of blessing or literally an eternity of blessing and I'm going to pack it into the remaining days of your life. Whether they be five years, a hundred years, or whatever they may be. God says, I will restore to you. Wow. Now come on, you cannot wrap your mind around that. I cannot wrap my mind around that. Well, that's what the Word of God teaches let me share with you that there are some specific principles. I call them restoration requirements. Things that we are called to do in order to cooperate with God to experience a recovering of all that the enemy has stolen. You guys want to write this down? The first one is we are to press into his presence. Secondly, we are to perceive his plan. Thirdly, we're to pursue until you prevail. This, le this message is brought to you by the letter P. <laughs> All right. Press into his presence, perceive his plan, pursue until you prevail. Let's talk about pressing into his presence. David had suffered an insurmountable loss, an unprecedented loss. The Bible says that his city, his home was burned to the ground, his possessions were looted. His family had been taken captive by the enemy. He lost everything. Everything. And to add insult to injury, his closest friends and his comrades had now turned against him. But yet, the scripture says that David made a quality choice. He made a choice not to become bitter. He made a choice not to throw in the towel or to resign himself. But he made a choice... To strengthen himself in the Lord his God. 
And the word that's used there for strengthen, or one translation says encourage, literally means to, to hold fast to, to fasten upon. He made a choice. God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust you. I'm going to lay hold of you. I'm going to strengthen myself in you. And I want you to understand this morning that before we can experience a full recovery of what God has in store for our lives, we must make a choice to press into his presence. I am telling you that there is a level of victory that God wants to grant to us as the body of Christ today, but we will never experience it until we learn to go to a deeper level of faith and intimacy with him. 2 Kings 19 verse 30 says, The remnant that shall escape from the house of Judah shall again, it says, put roots downward and bear fruit upward. If we are going to bear fruit upward, we're going to have to put roots downward. A tree planted by the rivers, Jeremiah 17 says, it will not, that tree that's planted by the waters, and he said the righteous are like that tree. He said that tree will be fruitful continually. In drought, in famine, that tree will be green. Why? Because it literally stretches forth its roots. It literally spreads out its roots. One translation says that that tree literally reaches deep into the water. What I'm trying to tell you this morning, beloved, is that God is doing a work in his body right now. And that work is he's preparing us to go deeper with him. And the first thing you need to understand that when you have suffered loss or when you are contending for your destiny is that there is a deeper level of faith that is required. Of necessity, you will need to descend to a depth that you've never previously plumbed to. The more powerful the promotion, the more profound the preparation process. I want to say that again. The more powerful the promotion, the more profound, and may I add, painful, the preparation process is. If you want to be used by God, if you want to see His glory, if you want to recover all and not settle for mediocrity, then you are going to have to move into another realm with God. I call it the resurrection realm. What is the resurrection realm? Well, Paul told us in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 9 that the purpose of trials was to move us into the resurrection realm. He said this, we have the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God that raises the dead. That is the resurrection realm. We have a sentence of death in ourselves. We are going through difficulties. We go through hardships. You know, some of us say, well, all things work together for good to those who love God. And those are the called according to his purpose. Amen. I love that verse. But do you understand that that's not what God was saying per se? Verse 29 is is literally the part B of that promise. Verse 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What does that mean? It means this, that no matter what you go through, all the trials, the hardships that you go through, that if you submit yourself to God, he has a purpose to make that work out for your good, to cause it to work out for your good. But what is that purpose? That you would be conformed to the likeness or the image of the Son. Some of us would say that I'll have a bigger house. 
that I'll have a nicer car. Listen to me, I believe in prosperity, but I'm telling you, it's not about the stuff. It's, it's, it's about the relationship with Him. And out of, the, of the, out of that relationship, out of that intimacy with God, literally flows all of the resources of the kingdom. If you need a financial miracle, it's because of your intimacy with God that you can experience that. No matter what it is, healing, uh, you know, whatever it may be, God will give it to you. Now listen, we are called to move into that place where I believe where we have to literally press into his presence. Do you understand what I'm saying? Listen, the old timers had something. Pardon me if anybody considers himself an old timer, forgive me. He used to have a saying that I believe the church is missed on it today. Because you know what we are? We're, we're, we are Pentecostal panaceas. We want, we want, we want uh, drive-up, quick-fix Christianity. Right? Okay, we want, just come and lay your hand on me and all my problems will be solved. Listen, we, we have to recognize that there is a place for what the old-timers called praying through. Praying through. Time to seek the Lord till he comes. Till he comes. Till you've experienced the miracle. Until the situation is changed. Not giving up, but pressing into his presence. When you look at your problems, you look at the size of the enemy's muscles, when he flexes them in your face, listen, I want to tell you that it may seem big, it may seem grandiose, it may seem insurmountable, but there is... A God, your God, is bigger, he's mightier, he's more powerful. But see, the problem is, it's our perception of God that has become minimized. See, the scripture says we're to magnify the Lord. What do we, how do we magnify God? Put him on Zoom, you know? I mean, no. How do we magnify God? It's like this. In the natural, we were just out in Colorado, and in the natural... You can see the mountain range for many miles away. And, and until you literally come up close to that mountain range, you really don't understand how lofty those mountains are. And you can look even at all the different mountains, the different ranges, and you can say, well, they seem to look similar in size. But the truth is when you get close, then at that point you recognize the tallest mountain, the most uh, uh, grandiose and vast uh, array of mountains or mountain range and that's the way it is with our relationship with God see the enemy seems big your problems seem so big cancer seems like a big word because it has indeed killed many people but you see when you when you look at it from that perspective and when you begin to shift to that place where you draw near to God where you come up close to God then at that point, you begin to magnify God and you begin to recognize by the Spirit, not just through intellectual assent, but you begin to recognize how big your God actually is. Then at that point, you begin to see how small, how puny, how minimal your problems are in light of His glory, in light of His power. There's an old song that says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His glorious face, and what? And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We need to press into his presence. There's no way we're going to be able to experience everything that he has for us without pressing into his presence. 
See, many people do not experience a full recovery. They get tripped up on this part. They, they don't move beyond this part. Because they look at their problems and they just say, Oh God, do something. Oh God, do something. And, and, and it's like, you know what I mean? I said to some, some people said to me, Well, if God, want, God wants to do it, He'll just do it. But that's not the way it works, people. That's not the way it works. That is not a biblical understanding of how God moves. The scripture says if we draw near to God, then what? He draws near to us. The Bible says that we are to go deeper in our, in our relationship with God. When you come to a place where it seems that the power of the enemy is just so strong, it seems that a mountain is in front of you and that that, that mountain is blocking literally you moving forward and obstructing you to go into your divine destiny, then you need to understand that God is requiring of you a greater level of faith. You need to pray through. You need to move into a place of fasting. You need to do something different that you've ever done before. And David was tested. This was literally the final test that David would experience before he was promoted into this position of king. Listen to me. The final examinations are the most important, aren't they? And it's important. It's, it's critical that we pass. So we need to press into his presence. Secondly, we need to perceive his plan. We need to perceive his plan. In 1 Samuel 30, verse 7 and 8, David inquires of Abathar the priest. He says, would you please bring the ephod here? And he brings it to David, and David inquires of the Lord of Yahweh. And he says, shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And God answers him. And he says, pursue, for you shall surely overtake them. And without fail, you will recover all. Listen to me. David would not make a move until he had clearly received the divine strategy. There are many of us today who in our time of testing, in our time of loss, in our pursuit, in a desire for recovery, we end up going ahead of God. We end up doing something in the flesh, we endeavor to solve and bring the solution to our problem with our own resources and understanding. And we need to be still and wait upon the Lord. We need to say, God, what is your strategy? What is your plan? Help me to perceive your plan. Lord, I intentionally seek out your will. Now you can say, well, God helps those who help themselves. Where's that in the Bible? God helps those who can't help themselves, who won't help themselves. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And then he will direct your path. When we veer off the God route, no matter how sincere we are, we're headed for trouble. Abraham was trying to help God out. Come on. He was saying, Lord, you gave me this promise of a son, but you know what? I, I, I think that, that somebody told Abraham back then that God helps those who help themselves. 
And, and Abraham at that point, he says, God, I, I think I just need to just to partner with you a little bit. I just need to collaborate with you uh, so that I can see your promises come to pass. And, and, and so, so what happens is he says, God, uh, you know, Hagar, uh, she's my, my, my wife's maidservant. You know what? And I, I think that my wife's in full agreement that, that we can make this thing happen, God. We can really help you out. And so what takes place is he has a, an intimate a sexual relationship with Hagar, as, as you know, and, and Ishmael is born, and the world has suffered ever since that time. And later on, God speaks to him, and he says, Now I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless Isaac, now that your wife is pregnant with the son of promise. And Abraham cries on and he said, Oh, that you would bless Ishmael. And God says, send him away. Send him away. I will not bless your mess. I will not bless the flesh. I will bless faith. I will bless obedience. But I will not bless your own solution, your attempt to solve the problem. I will not bless it. Listen. Moses, at the 40th year of his life, came to a realization, divine realization, that he was literally an Israelite and that he was called to shepherd the people of Israel. The Bible says in Hebrews 11 that he was willing to forsake all the riches of Egypt. The power, the wealth. Come on now. That's like Bill Gates saying, I'll give up everything and become a pastor. <laughs> of people that don't even like me. And the Bible says that in Acts chapter 7 that the time came when he saw an Israelite contending with an Egyptian. And Moses stepped in and you know the story. He killed the Egyptian. <laughs> and the Bible says... That he did this because he thought that his brethren would understand that the Lord had sent him to deliver them. But they did not understand Acts 7.25. He wanted to do God's will. But he wanted to do it his way. And... The result is he is banished into the wilderness for another 40 years until he learned that he had to do God's will, God's way. David had a noble aspiration in wanting to transport the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem. Again, good motives are not enough. God's will must be done God's way. He ends up transporting the, the ark on, on, you know, on a cart. And, and uh, what ends up happening is the, the, the oxen stumble and the ark is about to fall. And Uzzah, the Kohathite, reaches out to touch and literally prevent the ark from following. Come on now. He was doing a good thing. And God kills him. David is freaked out. David is afraid, the scripture says. I mean, he's just like, this is too much. Later on, David says, all right, we messed up big time. But we're going to do this thing again. 
This time we're going to do it the right way. And in 1 Chronicles 15 verse 13 it says, It was because you, the, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. We did not inquire about the prescribed way. We did not consult him about the proper order. There is a pattern that we're to follow. There is due order when it comes to fulfilling our destinies. In fact, I love the term prescribed way. Literally, that word prescribed means previously written out. Woo! Previously written out. You know, not, uh, uh, not too long ago when we first made the move down here to Florida, I was uh, in, a, in a garage getting my car fixed and I was like, God, what do you want me to do? I, I stepped out in faith to do what you've called me to do. I gave up my church. I gave up this and that. And God, I, I'm like, what do you want me to do? You got to open the doors. And, you know, things weren't happening the way I thought they should happen. And I'm sitting there and I'm just kind of stewing on this. And, and this elderly lady, probably in her late 70s, early 80s, sitting across me. She's getting her car fixed too. And she looks at me and she says, young man, are you in the ministry? I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, well, I just really feel that God is telling me to tell you that he has a road map. It's already mapped out and he's got it planned and, and stop trying to figure it out. All you got to do is, is begin to go down the road and, 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 you know, and he'll help steer the car. <laughs> Woo! I didn't even know who she was. She didn't know who I was. She was saying there's a prescribed way. There is a, there is a previously written plan stick to the formula stick to the plan consult God about that prescribed way stop birthing Ishmael stop trying to help God out lastly pursue until you prevail David understood what belonged to him by virtue of the covenant let me tell you something David had messed up David had made mistakes and even though he had made poor choices in life, he still understood that God had called him and had a plan for his life. He knew that God was committed to fulfill his destiny. Oh, aren't you glad? God is committed. Even when you're not committed, God is still committed. And when you are in a position where you're beginning to contend for your destiny. Now we're talking about contending for a destiny. You see, because you have to fight, you have to battle for your destiny to be fulfilled. You understand what his plan is. You've strengthened yourself in the Lord, but now you're going to move forward. Now you're going to launch an offense of yourself against the enemy. And at this point, we see David's situation in verses 11 through 15. You see, here, here's, here's what I want you to understand, that when you are committed to God's plan, not your plan, and when you are willing to contend for his purposes, God will supernaturally work behind the scenes, orchestrating everything, bringing it all together, 
establishing your relationships, the relationships that will be necessary to move you into that next place, that level that he has for you. Come on now, I'm preaching better than you're amen in me. And David moves forward with his men and they just happen to stumble along an Egyptian who was a servant of an Amalekite and he just happens to be left behind and he just happens to be there and, and he just happens to be literally the key that unlocks the door for David to be able to receive a full recovery. He says, look, don't turn me over to my master and, and you know, promise me that and give me some food and, and I'll tell you everything you need to know. I'll give you all the intelligence you want. He literally escorts David and his men into the enemy's camp. Verse 16. And when he brought them down, there they were spread out over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. This is hell's final party. Come on! That party is about to be crashed! <laughs> I mean, hell is gloating, hell is celebrating, but they don't understand that the whole party is surrounded by the military, that the, that the enemy is about to go down! Hell's final party! <laughs> David moves in. Come on, man. Let's do it. Let's kick some demon butt. Come on. And he moves in. And literally at that point, the Bible says that David attacks them from twilight until the evening and the next day. Here's my point. How many of us would be willing to fight that long? I mean, come on now. Someone's like, God, do it, but do it in an hour. You know, our Lord, I've showed up to Ignited Church today, and I heard that miracles happened there, but God, you know, i got to be out of here by 11.45, so. <sighs> I was preaching in a, in a large ethnic church recently, and uh, man, the power of God was moving, and, and I'm on the platform, and, and, and the Holy Spirit speaks to me. I, well, let me just tell you that these were brethren from the Caribbean, and I looked across, and I saw this Caucasian man and his wife, I assumed, came in, sat at the back. They were elderly. And uh, I, I looked at him and I thought, okay. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, he wants to be healed and I want to heal him. I said, that's good, God. And he began to talk to me about even some of his physical conditions. And so, I, so then what happened is right at the end, uh, when they turned it over to me to preach, I looked and this guy and his wife, they weren't there anymore. At that point, I, I just began to say, Lord, where, where'd they go? And then, you know, I started to preach, and I, I looked, and I'd, I'd scan the audience every so often. They, they hadn't come back. First, I thought maybe they had gone to the restroom or whatever, and no, they, they hadn't come back. And, and right near the end, I said, Lord, you told me you wanted to heal that man. What happened? And the Lord said to me, he said, son, he wanted me to heal him. He said, but he didn't like the worship and and he thought it was too long and he thought the service was too long so he wanted me to heal him on his terms and I just wouldn't do it I'm telling you when the service is over 
I'm, I'm out at our product table, and this lady walks up to us, and she says, you know, I'm, I'm involved in, in home care, and, and I invited that couple out tonight. I don't know if you saw them. I said, hard not to miss them, you know. And she said, she said, well, let me tell you. She said, he needed healing in his body, but he told me he didn't like the praise and worship, and he thought things were too long and too loud, and, and he left. And I said, that's exactly what the Holy Spirit told me. Listen to me. There was a woman who had an issue of blood in the Bible. She'd been in that condition for a long time. The Bible says that she would not give up. She would not give up. She did everything in the natural to no avail. Jesus shows up. She recognizes that she needs a healing. She would not give up. She does something that is actually not only unconventional, but, but at that time was, she was guilty of breaking the Levitical code. She reached out to touch Jesus and she was unclean. And Jesus healed her because of her dauntless faith. Because she would not give up. Because she said, I am going to pursue until I prevail. The Bible says it's time to seek the Lord till he comes and reigns righteousness. What if Elijah had prayed three times? Four times, five or even six times. The Bible says that he had the promise of God. First Kings 18, 1, it came to pass after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, go shew yourself unto Ahab because I'm going to send rain upon the earth. In fact, down in verse 41, it says that Elijah said to Ahab, get thee up, eat and drink for there's a sound of an abundance of rain. He heard it by the spirit. But yet, this man of God could have popped open his umbrella, confessed rain until he was blue in the faith, and nothing would have happened. The instruction of God was to go up to Mount Carmel. Elijah, I'm sorry, Ahab goes down to eat. He's up there praying. Come on now, that's a type. And he's seeking after God. And he puts his head between his knees in a birthing position. And he cries out to God. We don't know how long his prayers were. But he cries out to God seven times. On the seventh time, there is a, a, a evidence that God had heard his prayer because his servant sees a cloud the size of a man's hand. At that point, God answered Elijah and sent the rain. Now, the number seven is very significant in Scripture. The children of Israel marched around the walls of Jericho seven times for six days, and then, and then they, literally, uh, they literally marched every day seven times, and then on the last day, you know the story. Naaman had to take seven dips in, in the Jordan River. On and on. It speaks of consummation. It speaks of completion. It speaks of the perfect will of God. I was praying this morning, and I said, Lord... What do you want me to share? And the Lord took me to the story. First Kings chapter 13. Elisha's about to die. He's sick. The scripture says that. And what happens is the king of Israel shows up. My father, my father, my father. There's still war going on. The, the Syrians are still oppressing Israel. And, and Elisha instructs him to open the window to shoot an arrow. He does so. He says the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of the deliverance from Syria. Then what happens is he says, okay, here, now listen to this. This is very profound. He says, you must attack Syria until you completely defeat them. Hmm? 
That was the instruction. Now, the next thing that happens is he tells them to take some arrows and strike the ground. The king strikes the ground three times, and Elisha gets mad. He's angry. Why did you just strike the ground three times? You should have done it five or, or six times, and you would have been assured of complete victory. How many are willing to pursue until you prevail, until you have full victory? You see, David recovered all, verses 18 through 20. David recovered all the Amalekites had carried away. David rescued his two wives. Nothing was lacking, small or great. Did you hear that? That tells us that, you know, I mean, David's prized camel, his wife's mixing bowl, I don't know. His golf clubs, you know. But it wasn't just the big stuff, it was even the small stuff. So it tells us that God, nothing is too difficult for God beyond his ability to restore. But nothing is insignificant or trivial to him either. Some, you know, I, I meet people who come up and say, you know, I'll, I'll be praying with them. And they'll say, well, would you pray uh, for my friend about this, this? And, you know, my friend needs healed or whatever. And I'm like, okay. And then all of a sudden God gives me a word of knowledge that they have a physical condition or they have a, a, a you know, a marriage that's in shambles or something. And I said, well, about you? Well, well, that's nothing. That's not important. To God it is. And if you live with that kind of misunderstanding and misconception, you're never going to experience a full recovery. Neither small nor great. Sons or daughters, spoil or anything, which they had taken. David recovered all. David took all the flocks and herds that they'd driven before those other livestock, and he said, this is David's spoil. Now look at I want you to understand something. The enemy attacks you in the area of relationships. Marriage, kids, the enemy does whatever he can to mess up relationships. Get our kids back, get our kids pulled away from God. He'll attack you in your area of your resources, money, jobs, homes. But what does the Bible say? In Matthew chapter 10, and I'm going to close with this. We see the heart of God. Relating to what he wants. And sorry, Mark chapter 10, verse 29 to 30. Jesus answers, because Peter had just said to him, See, we've left all and followed you. God, we've given it all up. And he was sincere. And Jesus answers and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospel's who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Now, come on now, is that in your Bible? And what does he say? Just spiritual blessings, brother. Houses. Brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and lands. With some persecutions. Let's be real. Let's keep it real. And in the age to come, eternal life. It's not just pie in the sky when you die in the sweet by and by. It's now.